Welcome to the Grattan Podcast channel. You're with Megan from the Grattan Institute and today we're discussing prospects for a low-growth world. One of the big policy debates in Australia and around the world right now is whether economic growth will be slower in the future than in the past. Recent global economic performance hasn't been that promising, which raises concerns about our future living standards, public policy and politics. Today's podcast will run a little differently than usual. With the help of Australian Perspectives Fellow Brendan Coates and Productivity Growth Director Jim Minifee, we'll take an in-depth look at the evidence that economic growth may be slower in the future and what might be the cause of it and what policymakers could do in response. Brendan and Jim will drive most of today's conversation between them. So welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Megan. Thanks, Megan. Brendan, I'll ask you to start us off with a bit of an overview of the debate around this potential low growth future, and then I believe you have some questions for Jim. Thanks, Megan. So just to start off today, I think it's worth setting some context as to sort of what this discussion is about, which is really that, you know, global and local economic performance has been pretty modest at best over the last couple, really the last decade or so. So real GDP growth has been slowing in most advanced economies. Um, even in the post-GFC period, it hasn't picked up that much. Australia's done better than most. Um, but even then, we've seen relatively, you know, relatively modest economic growth, and economies haven't bounced back from the GFC in the way which we, which we first thought. And while this is going on, um, there's this growing concern that perhaps sort of the more recent trends we've seen with relatively modest economic growth will are a, a, a potential sign of where the economy is going to go in the future. Productivity growth's been pretty weak. And so economists, as you can imagine, are trying to make sense of these trends. And so there's a vigorous debate about what this all means for the future. So just to set up today's conversation, um, on one side, you've kind of got a growing set of voices suggesting that economic growth will probably be slower in future. So not the only one, but arguably the most prominent is someone like Robert Gordon, who wrote a quite a long time, 750 pages on the rise and fall of American growth. That must have been a fascinating read. Uh, well, look, I haven't, like most people, I've gone through a few of the chapters and then read a lot of summaries and critiques. And that's you know, the shortcut to uh, reading those kind of books. I've got a small child now, I don't have time for that kind of reading, <laughs> hence the podcasts. Um, and so his argument is essentially that, you know, having surveyed economic growth since the, essentially the 1850s, late 18th century, uh, late 19th century, sorry, you've seen um, more recent innovations are less, um, perhaps less groundmaking, less transformative than those in the past. And there's other reasons why economic growth might be slower in the future, like aging populations, means lower labour supply, or um, we've plateaued in educational attainment. But then on the other side of the debate, there are those that suggest that, you know, we're extrapolating, extrapolating too much from recent trends. So part of the current malaise might be cyclical, you know, macro policy just hasn't been where it should have been, we've probably not done enough, or we could see a future productivity boom if you, if you ask the technologists out of Silicon Valley. And so just like in finance, past performance is no guarantee of future performance. And so there's a lot at stake, obviously future living standards, as you said, um, and government policy. And so today's discussion will really answer sort of three questions. So how should we evaluate the evidence that we're in a low growth world, um, especially this debate about whether it's a short-term cyclical slowdown or a long-term structural decline that's gonna continue? What theories would really explain that? And then how should policymakers respond? So this, today's conversation will probably be a little bit more technical than some of the ones we've had in the past. And so as a result, um, we'll probably put up some references on the, the Grattan website after the fact. So if you're listening to this on iTunes and want to find a source that we've spoken about, just head to the podcast landing page and we'll see where we get to. So Jim, just to kick things off, can you take us through what does the global economy look like right now? How do things look in Australia? And what's the evidence really that we might be in a low growth world? Hmm. So in 2017, we're coming up for around 10 years after the global financial crisis, depending on where you want to date that major macroeconomic event. And it's been a very disappointing 10 years, I think, if anybody had told uh, a macroeconomist in the years preceding 2007 that by the time we got to uh, 2017, US medium wages would have just crept above where they were in 2005 and that per capita income in the euro area would still be lower than it was in uh, in 2005-2006. I, um, I think most people would have said, well, look, you're a great pessimist. And so I think that's the fundamental, very, very large-scale macroeconomic fact that this discussion about low growth is taking place in. Now, having said that, we are seeing more recently some more positive signs of, of a growth pickup. That started in the second half of 2016, 
and it manifests to a degree in strong resource prices in the first instance, but also you see industrial production measures picking up in the Eurozone, um, wage pressures starting to pick up in the US and so forth. And it's a, a bit of a um, nuanced picture around the world because there are significant developing economies that are still struggling like Brazil, but even, even Brazil has done a little better than uh, at, at its lowest point. And so I think from a, if you like, a cyclical standpoint, we've gone through the mother of all negative shocks that on some measures lasted the good part of a decade, and we're continuing to emerge from that. And I think a lot of the complexity in the macroeconomic discussion is about trying to tease out that very, very large, long cyclical shock from what looks like some longer run trends. And then obviously looking forward, trying to figure out what the enduring effects of the shock might be and whether those longer run trends are going to continue. So if you're looking at the world as we see it now, so you've had low income growth, low GDP growth, you've had low inflation and low interest rates. That could be a sign that we're in a cyclical downturn. You know, it's been a long recession, balance sheet recessions are typically pretty heavy and long lasting. Or it could also look like a world where, okay, there's maybe a bit of that and maybe what's happening is that the economy is just less uh, productive potentially than yeah. what we thought it could have been. And how do you sort of distinguish between those two and the yeah, current Yeah, that's data? terrific. So if you imagine, imagine a world where productivity growth were uh, was, was very weak, but policymakers were keeping the pressure on from the demand side, as it were, then you'd expect to see low output growth, but you wouldn't, you wouldn't expect to see low inflation. So another world might be a world where you've got um, a, a declining structural rate of interest due to demographic changes and falling cost of capital goods and a shift of the economy towards less capital intensive sectors, together tending to push down interest rates. But in principle, that oughtn't to lead to, to any particular implication for output growth or inflation. You could imagine you're at a steady state with full employment and interest rates fall. Um, and, and I think it's, it's, it is quite instructive to consider what subset of causes are consistent with these three phenomena. Growth lower than it has been in the past, inflation lower than it has been in the past, and very low interest rates. Uh, to me, the most plausible explanation is the cyclical shock associated, as you said, with a very, very large financial cycle, but also bleeding on into aggregate demand through government balance sheets and very weak investment and so forth, uh, tending to reduce output growth below potential. Um, and, and there's strong evidence for that in the years immediately sub subsequent to 2007, you know, through to about 2012 in, in, uh, in many economies and then going longer in the case of the Eurozone in particular. Uh, low inflation is consistent with, if you like, uh, weak aggregate demand. And the interest rate story sort of fits in between those two um, in, in demonstrating, I guess, a short-term willingness to hold safe assets. And so there's a whole body of theory about why the uh, yield on safe government bonds dropped to or even below zero. Uh, in, in some cases. Uh, but I think now it's also credible that some of the cyclical forces have been reinforcing an underlying structural shift towards very, very low interest rates. And, you know, if you go back to the early 2000s, Bernanke was talking about a relative savings glut coming out of East, and, uh, East Asia and elsewhere. Um, and I think now, particularly with the very low costs of um, capital goods and the shift towards a, a more virtual economy, demand for capital goods tending to fall as well. Both of those things in a structural sense are tending to push down interest rates. And just to round out what Larry Stummers would call a theory about uh, secular stagnation, you'd say that policymakers bump into the zero lower bound because the structural interest rate is so low. And assuming that they're not trying radical things with monetary policy, then they end up not being able to respond as aggressively as they otherwise would have to a very large cyclical shock. So that's in the lead up to, I guess, the and, and the early years of the, um, of the Great Recession, 
one way to tell that story. And the question now is, well, we're 10 years after the inception of all of that, so how are those things playing out now? And to my mind, a plausible explanation would be, well, those structural drivers of low interest rates haven't gone away. Um, we've had, I guess, feeding into almost a structural um, hangover from that very large cyclical period, low investment reducing the capital stock. There's been a degree to which many workers who've been doing fewer hours or lower quality jobs or no jobs at all have had their skill acquisition impeded and slowed down. And so as a result, the productive capacity of the economy is well behind where people thought it would be. So in that sense, there's been a kind of structural blowback from that large cyclical shock. Now, that's all by way of looking backwards and telling a story about how the combination of structural and cyclical forces got us to where we are. But if you look ahead, you could tell quite an optimistic story from the point of view at least of the cyclical drag, because there's no reason why some of that built up um, underinvestment can't be reversed. People to some extent can make up for those lost years of de-skilling, if you like, through insufficient uh, work hours. And so conceivably, even if the structural trend remains weak, we might get a period of relatively strong, um, if you like, cyclical growth. We've got some room to exceed the growth potential of the economy and to build that back up again through relatively strong aggregate demand. And so the optimist would say um, that the recent forecast coming out from the OECD, which effectively builds on this relatively good news over the last year or two, um, is not is not implausible, right? We might be in for a period where even if the structural trends are tending to drag us down, and we should talk more about those, um, maybe on that, if you like, the cyclical side will, will be coming up for a period. One other probably thought I'd want to add into that would be, you know, the the global story is what you've, what you've largely been describing, Jim, that there's also the question of the mining boom in Australia, which is obviously another part of... Um, what you have to overlay in understanding what's happened in Australia, and particularly in a world where we've seen sort of real income growth, say, falling in Australia for the last five years. And that seems to be, in my mind at least, largely about the fact that commodity prices sort of peaked in 2013. We had this period of very strong uh, uh, appreciation of the terms of trade. Uh, our exports, commodity exports, uh, appreciated a lot versus our imports. That... Um, certainly helped to uh, boost national income. So initially that's captured as mining sector profits and higher wages during the run-up of the boom. Uh, over time that flowed through to all Australians as you know the exchange rate appreciates, which means that the purchasing power of Australians to purchase goods from abroad increases. Um, and also you get higher wages as um, employers in the sort of Eastern states are competing with you know Queensland and WA to retain workers in order to keep producing goods and services. And so like one particular stat that's always stuck in my mind is a research paper from the Reserve Bank that essentially used CG modelling to estimate that the mining boom probably boosted real per capita household disposable income, which is obviously a certain definition of income by about 13% by 2013 compared to if that mining boom had never existed. And so then when the mining boom comes off, when those prices fall, um, then you see the terms of trade fall back. Um, that, that whole process reverses. And so one of the explanations for why real per capita incomes in Australia have been pretty bad for the last sort of five years is essentially that you're seeing the reversal of that process. Yeah, so that's obviously been Australia is such an, a unique developed economy in that respect, or maybe I should say almost unique, right? There's a few others around the world, Norway, um, obviously a big, a big oil exporter, um, but the experience um, in parallel, I guess, with the rest of the with the rest of the world, has been a slowdown in productivity growth from two thousand and three, and as you said, that big boost to incomes, effectively from a both from a government budget perspective and also from a household perspective, effectively made up for that decline in productivity growth, such that we continued from the early two thousands to have rising incomes up until about twenty twelve. So it's been a a period, if you like, of um, whatever the reverse of catch-up is, we've, we've been heading backwards relatively quickly in, in recent years because productivity growth, while it's picked up a bit, uh, has not been unusually strong, while the price effects that you just talked about, Brendan, are pushing us in the other direction. And it's, it's, um, it's quite striking, though, that through all of those gyrations, we've managed to avoid the big hit to 
let's call it demand that led to the that very deep recession in the North Atlantic economies and in other parts of the world. And so we're now still in a position where our per capita incomes are about 160% higher than they were in the early 1990s, whereas if you go to our rich world peers, those numbers vary from 120 in Japan up to about 150 in the US or a bit, bit under 150. So we've, in, in some sense, we've had very good economic performance um, on an income basis, temporarily, though it was through the mining boom, but also on, a, on an output basis. And so I think the question uh, is really, well, what is that global environment going to look like? And what are the forces that might cause some deviation in our output performance uh, in Australia compared to the rest of the world? And we can sort of explore those if, if you're interested in going, going forward. So you've set out a, a story so far that's potentially like relatively op- optimistic on the on the cyclical side. That essentially um, some of these headwinds that have been hurting or or restraining economic growth in Australia and around the world may potentially be starting to dissipate. So you know the the overhang from the global financial crisis and those those balance sheet recessions are starting to sort of work their way through the system. The I suppose the counterpoint or the counter example that's always put from those that are much more pessimistic is. You just look at, you know, in the sense of Gordon, you look at US productivity growth. It peaked at, say, annual TFP growth peaked at over 3% a year in the 1950s. It dropped down to 1.5% a year through the 60s and 70s. And now we're talking about TFP growth. What TFP growth? uh, So total factor productivity growth. So essentially, to what degree um, are you getting more output, whether it's in goods and services produced, that it's value to the community for each sort of unit of input, um, capital and labor combined that... Um, you're deploying in order to produce produce those things, mm-hmm. and so product that's TFP growth is essentially the shorthand for productivity growth. There's obviously different ways of of measuring it or defining it as well, but in the more recent decades, productivity growth TFP growth has really slowed. So we're talking we had a pickup in the 1990s with the IT boom, and then it's been fairly stagnant at well below one percent in the US since then, and Australia mm-hmm. tends to follow that global frontier. Yeah, that's right. I mean, we fluctuate. We're lower by maybe 15% or 20% because of our remoteness, but we tend to follow quite tightly those TFP trends with amazingly similar turning points, as you said, in the 1990s, a bit of a pickup, slowed down in 2003, and then going back in time, there's a similar turnaround in the 1970s with stagflation and so forth tending to knock us back. So I guess a first a first hypothesis would be, yeah, we, uh, we, we tend to move in lockstep at least we have tended to move to some degree in lockstep with the average of the rich world. So the question then, if I can just uh, prejudge what you were going to ask, is it the case that, um, you know, is it plausible that that structural side is going to remain, if you like, lower than it once was and perhaps lower where a lot, a lot of people might expect? Yeah, and how, and how important yeah. is that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's, so it's, it's a really key sort of question. And um, it's, a, it's an incredibly difficult one to answer, I think, because if you, if you look at the, that historical experience that we've both just alluded to, there are quite large shifts that have occurred in the past that happen to be quite well correlated across countries, at least across developed countries. And, you know, I don't think I know how to predict those turning points, and I don't know how to predict whether there'll be another turning point. Um, As you said, there's the pessimistic view that basically says, well, you know, um, inventing Twitter or Facebook or the iPhone is just not as big a fundamental transformation of how people live as widespread electrification or antibiotics or the motor car and what have you. Um, I, I tell you why even on the raw GDP measure, and we should get to this question of how that indicator relates to the deeper value drivers that people are trying to maximise in their lives as consumers, human beings. Um, But uh, I guess I'm optimistic for the following reason. It's related to that point that I made about a kind of backlog of investment. It's conceivable to me that Firms find that there are good and bad times to aggressively commercialise research, 
takes a lot of investment and it takes obviously a lot of in-market branding and outreach and capital investment to to really push aggressively uh, innovations into the day-to-day operations of firms. And certainly the period immediately after the financial crisis is a terrible time to do any of those things. And so, so it's conceivable if you've got a model in the back of your mind, which I'm not saying is exactly the right model, that labs are cooking up cool ideas at some pace and then firms commercialise it when it's commercially sensible to do that, it's conceivable to me that there's something of a backlog. So in a, in a world where there's not many people to sell to because demand is relatively weak, the returns to actually going out and taking and those Financial risks. conditions and so forth are, are not conducive. And you could even push that further. I think this is probably a case of sort of ex post rationalisation, but you could even push it back to that period of relatively weak productivity growth prior to the financial crisis. So that was a period where financial system was growing very, very strongly, but they're focused on uh, on other assets, right? They were building real estate, for example. And so you could argue the case that for the last 13 years, for all of the Silicon Valley um, investment that there has been, that some of the, some of the broader investment in commercialising uh, fundamental technologies may have been weaker than it would have been under a different scenario. And so looking ahead, those technologies are still ripe. They can be further developed and pushed out there. So I wouldn't find that implausible. And then there's deeper headwinds the demographic ones, you can only educate people once, as it were, right? So we've had these big pushes to educate the population and we've moved from over the course of the last 100 years to a much larger fraction of people's potential working lives being uh, engaged in education. You know, we've had these big public health improvements, you can only do those once. Um, You know, sure, there are headwinds, but by the same token, when you look down the list of scientific innovations, I didn't articulate them, but if you think about everything from quantum computing to a lot of the genomics revolution, um, you know, autonomous vehicles and autonomous... Artificial intelligence, 3D printing, what's already here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) And so it's, yeah, so well, 3D printing is an interesting one because it's been around for a long time and seems to have found its niche and let's see where it's going to go. Well, that's an interesting one, actually, just to jump in there, Jim, is that the, like one thesis is essentially that technology has come about and then it takes us a long time to work out how to use them so Mm -hmm. for example electricity was invented it took 20 years before it really sort of translated to big increases in sort of labor productivity as firms started to replace steam engines with electric motors and so on or um ford with the motor car the motor car was a motor car was around so petrol engine motor car was invented and then it took until henry ford came along and sort of turned that process and built a business that's around the, a new way of using that technology to mass produce, you know, vehicles for the market. Same thing could potentially be the case with IT, where you've got firms like Uber now coming along that are designed around as a platform around the prospect of using technology, whereas you had smartphone apps for taxi cabs for a long time, or technology, sort of electronic technology that was used in those businesses, but not the bids firms weren't built around that idea. Yeah, that's right. Now, and in order to get a a step change in growth, you need to have a step change in that process as well. So some kind of long-term wave or, you know, a backlog or what have you. And I don't find any of those things implausible if somebody, if we cast our mind forward 20 or 30 years and, you know, they painted a story in which all of these technologies were widely deployed and it had driven productivity growth in large sectors of the economy, I would find that quite credible. Now, as you said, there's a there's a pushback that says, well, that's not what people don't want those outputs or the payoffs are actually really not that valuable. And there's always the spectre in the back of, I guess, every long-term forecast about productivity growth of the Bomol effect, where you get productivity growth that's rapid in some parts of the economy, leading to a payoff that people want to enjoy increased consumption across their full consumption bundle, including all of the parts of the economy that have had very low or no productivity growth. And as a result, the economy-wide productivity growth is often much, much slower than the growth you see in those leading sectors, right? So in the, the classic Bomol cases, we want to buy you know, more healthcare or more haircuts or whatever it might be, and those non-traded goods might not have had nearly as much productivity growth as you've experienced in manufacturing or whether it's IT, whatever that leading sector of the day happens to be. And so plausibly, we, we might continue to experience a world where you've got some 
extraordinary innovations getting commercialised, but if it's in a sufficiently small fraction of the economy, then aggregate productivity growth might continue to be relatively lacklustre. One, I think one conceptual point that's worth really clarifying here as well though, is the presence of technological change doesn't isn't proof that productivity growth is going to be as fast as in the past. That just proves that there is some productivity growth. I think something that people do find hard to conceptualise is we're talking about changes in a, in a rate of change. So the pace at which new inventions or new in innovations are being adopted in the economy or invented in the first place. So I think this is where I find it particularly hard to sort of distinguish between, well, as, as, as I think it is just a difficult question, it's to, to distinguish between is a, a particular technological innovation evidence that productivity growth is going to pick up in future. It's just that productivity growth isn't zero. And the question about whether it's faster or lower is, I think, hard for people when, you, when we, I find that if, you know, when we're having these debates with, um, with firms, for example, from business leaders, they'd point to, well, look at all these things that we're doing. And it's like, that's great. You're, those things are definitely improving productivity, their new technological innovations, but they don't in and of themselves prove that you're going faster or slower than the past. Yeah. And there are fascinating cross currents in whether the, if you like, the engineering aspects of doing inventions and commercialising them are speeding up or slowing down. So on the one hand, what you're seeing obviously is we're moving to a more virtual world where you can get software updates to a billion smartphones in a, in, a, in a very, very short period of time and so forth. Those all tell you that certain types of diffusion are very fast now. But on the other hand, there's some evidence that um, at least for some really core technologies, the um, if you like, the innovation per dollar or innovation per worker has declined quite steadily and very extensively over a period of decades. So if you go back and look at know how many patents or other measures of outputs of, of technology per researcher, those numbers are all many orders of magnitude lower now than they were 30 or 40 or 50 years ago. And potentially the implementation of some of the technologies you've talked about will decrease that even further. Well, it's I think it's a very mixed picture because on the one hand, you can, as I say, you can deploy some technologies much more aggressively, right? Just the capital intensity is so much lower that you're able to get things out more, more quickly and the whole economy is more connected. Um, I think some of the drivers of these slowdowns is, well, you know, we are dealing with harder problems now because we did the easy ones first. <laughs> I, I think that's a big part of it. Um, and then the other side of it is we're often investing in our R&D activity in dimensions of of performance that might not be fully picked up in GDP. And this sort of opens up that broader question of are we measuring it incorrectly? Um, and, and I guess the, the big takeaway would be, well, let, let's think about all of the efforts in clean energy investment, which are clearly necessary and clearly going to drive human welfare. And um, not all of those, at least in the short run, are going to get picked up in GDP, right? If I clean up pollution today, I'm going to have a reduction in deaths from uh, lung cancer in the following decades, right? If I clean up um, CO2 emissions today, then I'm going to have a different time path to a bunch of GDP and non-GDP welfare drivers in the future and so forth. But the um, immediate output payoff of some of these things that I'm investing R&D in or actually investing physical capital in, in the case of clean energy, is low to negative. Um, and you can make some similar arguments about health. If people are investing in uh, their longevity, that's not necessarily going to drive GDP per capita because the denominator is getting bigger, right? People are living longer. And so a lot of those things are not necessarily directly getting picked up in GDP. So there is a point of view that would say, well, you know, actually what people want these days is not more GDP growth and therefore you shouldn't worry about slow growth. Now, my argument would be, no, no, right? you want the right kind of growth, but you absolutely want to have continued growth because there's still obviously many people around the world who got extremely low incomes. And then the, to the extent that you're driving productivity growth in, if you like, the vanilla sectors, that lets you, lets you pick up a whole bunch of other value drivers that are meaningful to people. Also, if we are, even though we, the, the question is, are we missing or mismeasuring productivity growth? We obviously care about those non-market 
um, aspects of well-being. So things that aren't captured in, in gross domestic products. So anything that's not transacted on the market or in the government sector. You know, for a great example would be leisure. So uh, one of the great one of the examples that's commonly given of where we're mismeasuring or not capturing the benefits of say our smartphones and you know the internet and so on is that you know. Google searches and Facebook are inherently improving not leisure time, so time where you're not in the market, um, and that produces value for people. They can connect well, better with their with their peers and their family and friends, or they can more efficiently, say, find a restaurant to go online. That search costs that aren't necessarily being picked up in sort of wages or in the economy itself. Um, mm. And the the question I suppose I have there is, well, is the productivity mismeasurement issue worse? Than in the past, because if you believe that that it, it's not a question of productivity growth being lower, but just that we're mismeasuring it, then the issues have got to be worse. And so if the, the example I would give would be that there's some work by Brookings that suggests that you know mismeasurement of IT preceded the productivity slowdown. So you know IT came along in the 1990s or 1980s and really became prevalent in the 1990s, and we only at, at that point the same sort of issues with mismeasurement were starting to take place then. And so are we? are we in a world where mismeasurement is worse than what it has been in the past? Yeah, that's what you'd have to test. Now, I, I believe the literature here says, look, there's a measurement contribution, but there's been a genuine slowdown. Seems yeah. to be the, seems to be where people get to. And you certainly see that in, in income growth. I mean, the only way, I guess, the counter-argument would be, well, actually, that our whole measurement of CPI is incorrect. And so inflation is actually much lower than we think it is, and real income growth has been much higher than, it think, than, than you think it is. And you know that is a hard one to evaluate. Um, you know, if you if you said, would you prefer today's healthcare at today's prices or fifty years ago healthcare at fifty years ago prices? I think most people pick today's. And um, by the same token, if somebody said, well, you know, don't worry about the fact that you can't afford X, Y, and Z because now you've got an iPhone. I mean, that's clearly wrong. So I think those questions of how you make those very long-run assessments of whether people's lives are getting better are complex and in some sense ultimately somewhat subjective and Angus Deaton who spent conceptual, a, really. Yeah. I was going to say Angus Deaton who spent a good part of his career looking at these issues in a cross-country context ultimately became somewhat agnostic about the the prospect of ever being precise about about those matters. Mm. And I would tend to share that view. So a great example of that is um, the current debate about whether the median income earner in the US is better or worse off than what they were since 1990. If you're mismeasuring inflation and you're understanding the growth in, because if you think the way you, you would do this is you, you know what nominal wages are and how much incomes have increased sort of in, in the dollars that people see in their pockets and in their bank accounts. And then when we're talking about real terms, you're adjusting for inflation to understand how much someone's real purchasing power has changed as a result of you know, change in, in economic shifts over time. And so if you're attributing a, an increase in someone's, an observed increase in nominal wages to inflation as opposed to real income growth, then you're going to understate the degree to which there's been economic progress. And that's, that's a debate that's certainly ongoing in the US. Yeah, that's right. U- ultimately, I think it's difficult to resolve. Yeah. So should we talk about some of the other structural explanations of um, why we might end up being in a low growth world. And I think it's worth um, sort of, as we discussed at the start, there's this, there are essentially ideas about two competing explanations for the world that we see. So there's the long-term permanent slowdown in what we would call potential, economists would call potential output, which is essentially, you know, what's the productive capacity of the economy? And it has a technical definition as essentially what's the productive capacity of the economy with stable inflation? So when you're sort of at a neutral point in the economic cycle or that we're suffering the tail end of the global recession, this is the alternative explanation, and that as we come out of that, um, and particularly in Australia, as we come off the tail end of the mining, the come down from the mining boom, from that high, um, that um, economic activity will pick up and things will look, look better. So some of the ones that we haven't talked about in sort of the structural explanations, which are really about how what potential, how fast potential output is growing, are things like rising inequality, market concentration. Um, we've talked a bit about investment, but I was wondering if you had anything to add there, Jim. So do you have any thoughts on sort of demographics, rising inequality or market concentration as drivers of this story? Yeah. So on the inequality, um, I, I, would, I would only observe that there's no reason to think that human capital investment is 
optimal and therefore when you have higher rates of, of, of inequality potentially, the economy is wasting a lot of potential of talent and potential output. But I haven't seen credible research that sets out how big the shortfall might be and whether that shortfall has grown in recent years. Of course, the story in Australia on inequality is a little bit different than you see in, in the US, which gets a lot of attention. And I think that would be the topic for probably another discussion. So I would probably think in the, in the near term, inequality probably is not driving slow growth uh, at least certainly not driving the step down in growth in recent years because we haven't had much change in inequality. I'm not saying it hasn't changed. Um, the demographics is another one which I think can be overstated. There are strong motivations at the household level if you think you're living longer to save more. Now that might push down, in, if you like, equilibrium interest rates and could be one of the drivers of that difficulty of sort of bumping into the zero lower bound that, that we talked about earlier. But if anything, you'd, you'd expect to see higher availability of capital to be supporting growth. So you've really got to look at the labor side and say, well, you know, are we getting old enough fast enough for macro output to be reflecting the aging of the workforce? And the answer is yes, but only quite recently and not yet very much. So I think over the next sort of five or eight years, we might lose a couple of percentage points of output uh, if there are no increases in labour force participation just due to ageing. And in that context, and immigration is helping potentially to a degree to, to smooth um, what you will often think of as the old age dependency ratio. What's the ratio of young people of working age who are you know, productive in the market economy, earning wages, saving, investing, all those things. Yeah, I believe it, it, it drops down that average, but not much. No, it doesn't it make that bit. big difference. So it just so smooths it think, over. Yeah, so, so my, my gut feel would be that demographics matters for interest rates. If you've got a lot of people in that high saving period of their life and they're expecting to live longer than they used to, then you're going to have a lot of saving. But I'm, 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 I think for Australia anyway, I don't think we're seeing per capita output growth falling much because of ageing. Now that can change. And of course, aggregate growth can shift as you see in Japan and even increasingly in China. So aggregate GDP growth can fall if the population growth rate uh, is, is uh, low or even negative as, as in the case of Japan. Well, that's, what, that's an interesting one that, um, that Per capita income growth in Japan is actually pretty good. It's That's certainly right. been it's the better. Aggregates, it's the aggregates that are very weak because the population growth is very, very slow. And so we tend to focus or um, economic commentary tends to focus on sort of aggregate GDP. So what's the total production of goods and services in the economy? But obviously, the more migrate, the more population growth you have, the more that masks the trends. And what we really care about in terms of living standards is per capita GDP and also non-market um, consumption. Yeah. And so just other potential explanations have been put forward, particularly in the US context. You mentioned concentration, rising market power of large firms. Um, that has been a real trend in the US. Emerging work we're doing at Grattan suggests that that's not the case in Australia. So we do have some concentrated sectors, but the trends do not appear to have been anything like what you've seen in the US. And even in the US, I think you're really drawing a long bow to say that it's the rising concentration that has led to output restriction and investment shortfalls and so forth. People have put forward that point of view, but what they've never managed to explain is why a fairly slow burn of an increase in the power of large firms over many decades contributes to a sort of a step change in investment, which is, to my mind, much more plausibly explained by the financial crisis and recession and so forth are these cyclical phenomena. So I find that that rise of market power and concentration probably to be a non-explanation. Um, there are other things that have slowed investment in Australia, particularly in non-mining, that um, have contributed to low growth in, in, in recent years. Uh, but it's not a concentration story. Has concentration of industries become, has it always just been high in Australia? You know, we're a small open economy um, well, formerly more closed economy, you, you've got the tyranny of distance. Um, there are certain sectors that always have um, economies of scale. So, you know, any sector where you have one player, where you sort of have a natural monopoly where 
it's natural that you'll always have one or one um, power station or one utilities company or one national telecommunications provider um, that uh, you'll see those concentrations sort of naturally take place. Has that always been, is that is the story in Australia that we haven't had the trend increase just because it's it's just as steady as it has been for a long time? So I don't know what concentration looked like many decades ago, but at least over the last 20 years, there appears to have been relatively little change in most sectors. I think the other sort of cross-country comparison point to make is that many of the sectors that are relatively concentrated in Australia, as you said, for reasons of network or other scale economies, are concentrated in other economies as well. But sometimes if you've got a really big country like the US, the regional um, concentration can be much higher than those national ones appear. So overall, again, this is sort of a sidebar, I don't think it's driven slow growth. And, you know, there's a whole story about concentration in Australia and the costs and, you know, what your policy agenda would be. And um, uh, again, I don't think I don't think it's driving weak economic growth. So we've talked about some of the cyclical explanations for why, say, economic output is below what we think is potential. So the economy is not doing as well as it probably should be, given, you know, the state of the world, productivity, all the rest of it. One of the ones that we haven't talked that much about yet is monetary policy in, you know, in the US and, and the UA and so on, and also in Australia. So during the, the global financial crisis, we saw an incredible expansion of central bank balance sheets as um, those central banks loosened monetary policy. So you saw quantitative easing where central banks bought a lot of bonds to essentially push down real interest rates. And also we discovered that the zero bound wasn't actually at zero, at least in places like Switzerland and the like, where perhaps you don't need, this is the idea that basically once interest rates get to zero, they can't go any lower because you can't pay people in or you don't want to have, but banks and others won't pay in order to have their money locked up with the central bank. And as it's turned out, they've been quite happy to pay at least low rates of interest to the central bank. So basically negative interest rates in order to make sure their money is safe. Um, but despite that, most central banks have been undershooting their inflation targets. So that's certainly been the case in the US. It's been the case here. Um, so what do you think the story with monetary policy? How much of that has that contributed to this cyclical sort of downturn and has it prolonged it compared to perhaps where it needed to be? So because we've had a very, what economists would call a U-shaped recovery where as opposed to what's called a V-shaped recovery where output rapidly returns to sort of mm. pre-crisis levels and everyone um, moves on. And that's what we saw certainly at the end of the, um, the 80s recession is a quick, short, sharp recession and then a recovery. Um, this yeah, time it's been a much that was, lower. That was, that was a pretty deep recession in, the, in, a, in Australia. So that early, that late 80s, early 90s downturn was quite deep, and there was quite there was a long grind back to full employment. Um, so yeah, it was perhaps somewhat more V-shaped than some of the you could even call them L-shaped outcomes in in the US, and particularly in the eurozone. So I guess the, you know just to just to sort of zoom right out, there were recessions during the period of high inflation, during which monetary authorities attempted to make a step change down in inflation. When they felt that they'd made enough of an impact on inflation expectations, they would tend to take their foot off the throat of the economy and the economy would come back to life. And those those recessions tended to be V-shaped. A recession that's effectively engineered by a central bank for that purpose is a totally different beast to a recession that is precipitated, arguably precipitated by kind of financial imbalances and, and what have you. So that's one theory. So one theory would be we just had a very different type of global recession back in 2007. And central banks, when you're at zero, don't supposedly don't have as much firepower. And so monetary policy is kind of pushing on a string and you just, you just don't, get the, you don't get the response. So that's one way to explain what happened. And that would just say we did our best on monetary policy. And even if zero wasn't quite as low as you could go on the interest rate, you know, go a little bit lower, but it's still not low enough. And it's certainly the case that you know, that conventional mechanical view of what the the, the um, interest rate ought to be, the Taylor rule, which essentially says, well, I'll uh, set set my, um, my target interest rate as a function of unemployment and inflation, um, is sufficiently far below zero that I just can't get there, then, you know, you would say that monetary policy is kind of, um, is uh, in, just not going to work. 
There'd be two different theories that I think are worth considering. So one would be actually monetary policymakers got it badly wrong around the time of the financial crisis and they thought that their, their interest rate was an appropriate measure of the stance of monetary policy, but in fact the right stance ought to be something like actual NGP, NGDP growth or um, some other measure of the real economy and you, you, you would say on that world, well actually monetary policy was way too tight and actually tightened during the recession despite the fact that interest rates fell. To me that debate's a bit semantic because well, look, you can either say I loosened but not enough or I tightened. I mean, in some sense, it's a, it's, I think it's a little bit, um, it's a little bit semantic. And that whole, think- that whole nominal GDP de- debate, targeting debate is also a very technical one um, that might be a, an opportunity for another podcast for our monetary <laughs> policy theorists out there that yeah, listen to Grattan. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And um, so, so to me, the most plausible explanation is... Yes, in some central banks, there was a degree of conservatism, and you saw that very strongly in the ECB, or you saw this kind of ambivalence in the Bank of Japan, not quite sure whether they really wanted to reflate or not. And I would argue that the experience of Arbonomics is that um, you can do it if you want, right? That quite a big impact on a bunch of nominal and real variables. Um, and, uh, and I guess the one other constraint apart from a kind of innate conservatism has been, let's take the the Reserve Bank of Australia. They've been quite explicit that they would love to have been more stimulatory, but they had concerns about financial stability effectively. And so what that would tell you is it's not just output and inflation in the near term that banks care about. They're trying to think about the whole time path of the economy's recovery from recession, and they don't want to sacrifice um, long-term stability for a short-term push to GDP and to the extent that you don't have your prudential settings right then low interest rates can lead to financial risks and so maybe one of the big lessons coming out of this whole um, experience of the financial crisis and the ensuing low growth is you shouldn't let finance drive the economy in the way that we permitted it to do in the mid-2000s. So when we talk about financial stability and the RBS concern, what we we really mean is the housing market and the risks of a housing market boom and bust cycle because of an excessive because of a build up of, of excessive leverage and too much risk taking that fir- that firms and households are in a position later on where they can't because interest rates are low, um, and if you lower them further, that would certainly boost house prices more. That you'd be in a situation where um, those firms and households wouldn't be able to repay those debts if. You know something happened like if unemployment there was an economic shock unemployment rose and i think it's quite interesting that the reserve bank you know on its own inflation forecasts doesn't expect to hit the bottom end of the target band until i think 2018 and then it's only it's going to sit at the bottom of the target band and so when they do these forecasts they say okay well what's the likelihood that we hit our inflation target which is supposed to be between two and three percent and if they're going to get to two and a quarter percent by the sort of the end of 2018-19 then almost like somewhere between 30 and 40% of those probabilities are that they undershoot. And that's on their own monetary policy, which does suggest that perhaps you could be doing more on macroprudential rules to, which is obviously a, a topic we've discussed before in this podcast in the context of housing. But and that would be another area where you could limit or mitigate those financial stability risks so that the, the central bank, in this case, the Reserve Bank, felt more comfortable to, to lower interest rates. So to get GDP up and uh, lower unemployment, all the rest of it. Yeah, and obviously some action has been taken on that front. Yes. More could be done. So on balance, Jim, um, my take on on what you're saying is that essentially um, in the debate between is this a structural slowdown or growth or a cyclical slowdown, it's been quite a lot of it's been cyclical um, and therefore the economy should improve from here. Economic activity should pick up. Unemployment could potentially fall. Um, there's a degree to which... The, the depth of the recession has sort of delayed some of the improvements that we would hope to see in productivity because of um, it hasn't been attractive for firms to invest and for uh, to commercialize research. Is that kind of way a fair summary, summary of where you sit and whether do you think this is a structural or a cyclical story? And what evidence should we look out for, for to be more certain one way or the other? Yeah, so I, I, would, I would add to your summary that we don't know what's going to happen on the structural side. So when it comes to policy action, it's all about acting under uncertainty as it always is. And 
my one other point to add is that how we manage from a more short-term cyclical perspective is also a choice. And so the economy is not totally independent of what policymakers do. And if you found, you know, more years going by associated with the quote-unquote the same old policy settings, then maybe you have to start thinking about those policy settings. And that's a story that you could tell very aggressively in the Eurozone over the many years after 2009. Um, And I think we do need to be vigilant that we don't end up in that situation in Australia. So obviously there's a whole policy agenda that we can turn to. So this is this has been fascinating. Um, obviously, we've really just talked at this point about the debate, whether it is structural or cyclical, this this whole low growth world and, and whether we are facing a future of a low growth world. Um, I feel like maybe I need a bit of time to digest all of this information before we then move on and talk about what policymakers should be doing. So I think maybe we, we might just, um, you know, finish the chat there for the moment and perhaps we can come back again sometime um, in the very near future, Jim and Brendan, and actually discuss in depth what policymakers should be doing now and, and, and what the consequences of a low-growth world might be. I look forward to it. Excellent. Yeah, I, th- I think our, our listeners and, and myself as well need time to digest, digest <laughs> this conversation, um, study some notes, come back with uh, a few more points and, um, you know, get into what Grattan's really good at, which is essentially working out where policy should go and advocating for those changes. And also for our listeners that are interested in reading more about this topic, um, we'll, as I said at the start, we'll put up a few references on the landing page and the Grattan website for this podcast. Uh, one that I think is particularly good is a, a compilation by Cardiff Garcia at the Financial Times of all the different explanations of and views of productivity and innovation stagnation, past and future. And the way that Cardiff puts it is that, you know, you have a social life, you, who has time to read all these things, you need a nerd to, to compile all of them for you. That's what you've got us for. And thankfully, we've got Cardiff as well. So um, check that out on the website. We'll also put up some of the other papers that we referenced throughout this discussion, um, including some of the work that Grattan's done on these issues in the past. Well, thank you so much for your time, Brendan and Jim. It's really, as I said, been an absolutely fascinating discussion. Appreciate it. Thanks for having us. Thank you. If, if you've enjoyed listening to today's special edition podcast, um, a deep dive into the prospects for a low growth world, do give us some feedback. Um, you can tweet at us at Grattan Inst or head over to our Facebook page, Grattan Institute, and let us know what you've thought of this particular podcast and whether you'd like to hear more of them and whether there are any particular topics you'd like us to discuss. Um, and of course, if you want to stay up to date with all of Grattan's news, research and events, you can also follow us on Twitter or Facebook or head to our website, grattan.edu.au. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, then also please let your friends know by heading over to iTunes and giving it a rating or review. Thanks for listening. Grattan Institute is uniquely positioned to bring an independent, rigorous and practical lens to big issues in public policy with the capacity to talk honestly to both sides of politics. We maintain this unique position through the generosity of the public and our affiliate companies. If you would like to find out more about contributing to our continued independence, head to our website to donate, grattan.edu.au. This has been a Grattan Institute podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to our podcasts on iTunes.